Welcome to How to Lose a Girl in 10 Days, the podcast where we talk about the opinions of old people and young people, from fair wages, carbon zero, sheen halls, and everything else in between. Hi everyone, welcome back to How to Lose a Girl in 10 Days, your podcast on everything politics. I'm your host, Zandi. Um, today Holly's been calling to work sick, but we have a very special guest, James Shaw, co-leader of the Green Party. Kia ora. Kia ora, James. Could you introduce yourself to us? Uh, yes. Um, my name is James Shaw and I'm the co-leader of the Green Party. <laughs> I'm also uh, the Minister of Climate Change uh, and I'm an Associate Minister for the Environment with responsibility for biodiversity. Nice. Tell me, James, what's your story? Like, How did you end up in politics? Uh, well, um, it kind of depends. There's a lot of and this is probably true of most politicians, there's, there's no one thing, right? But if I, I trace it back to uh, when I was sitting in class as a 12-year-old chatting with my friends uh, and realised that the class had gone silent and I was then, you know, like that really awkward moment where you realise that actually the teacher's been talking for a while. And so as my attention tuned in, um, w- the first words that I heard him say were, countries go to war over things like this. And that kind of grabbed my attention. And it was the day after the Rainbow Warrior had been bombed in Auckland Harbour by the French Secret Service. Uh, and so that was, you know, I was 12, and it was about, it was the first time in my life where I uh, kind of connected to the wider world, you know, outside of my Dungeons and Dragons game and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and really, that kind of turned me into an environmentalist. And so I kind of carried on with that um, in my kind of, High school years, um, joined Greenpeace, etc., um, Amnesty International. Uh, and then in 1990, which is my last year of high school, that was also the first year that the Green Party contested a general election as the Green Party. And so I volunteered on the Wellington Central campaign uh, there. Um, we, we didn't get anywhere because it was, MM, was uh, first-past-the-post and, you know, we didn't win any seats. Um, uh, um, and then I kind of got very involved, blah, blah, blah. Disappeared off overseas, um, like a lot of people. Uh, and it was, I was while I was doing postgrad, actually, at Bath University, um, in sustainability and leadership and came really just had my nose rubbed in the data around climate change. So I'd sort of been, a, I guess, a, a general purpose environmentalist up until that point. Um, um, but it was, it was when I was doing postgrad that I, that I really started to focus on, on climate specifically because you can save the whales, but if you don't stop climate change and the oceans cook, then, you know, it renders all of your efforts obsolete, right? So climate change is this kind of omni-threat. Um, and so that was where I decided, okay, I've got to pay attention. That's where I've got to focus my my efforts. And that's where I have to focus my efforts on politics because when it comes to climate change, whilst it's going to take all of us um, and it's going to take everything that we've got to fix this thing, some of the things that have to happen can only happen in the political domain, and so, and those are kind of big system shifts, and so that's where I was like, okay, that's 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 me then. Okay, so then what brought you back to New Zealand? Because you said you went overseas. Yeah, well, I was yeah I was living in London, kind of working around the world, um, and what brought me back was I wanted to run for parliament and start to make a difference. And although New Zealand is a small country, you know, tiny emissions profile compared to you know much of the rest of the world uh we do we are an oecd country right we're a wealthy country compared to most 
um, and we've got great demonstration value. And whilst it often takes us a little while to kind of get with the program on some stuff, uh, when we move, we actually do move astonishingly quickly because we're a small country, you know, because there's only five and a half million of us. And so um, I thought, well, actually, you know, Aotearoa can have demonstration value. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to come and get involved in politics here because I thought that New Zealand could help to influence other wealthier countries by going first. Okay. Well, that's quite inspirational. Um, so moving on, we like to ask all, all the politicians who come on here a series of quick-fire questions. Same questions, just sort of give people a bit of a taste of what it is. So we'll start with this. So in five words or less, what do you think is the most like, important issue affecting young people today? Sorry, I'm just trying to count out five. This is like a haiku type <laughs> exercise. It's not exactly quick fire. Uh, I would say it's the future. This is a yes or no question. Do you plan to increase mental health support for university students? Yes. Yes. That's an easy one. Um, this is another yes or no. Do you support increased funding for public transport? Yes. All right. Uh, next question. Another yes or no. Will you revoke fees free for university students? No. Okay. Um, Final question, favourite musician? Can I give you my favourite song? Okay, okay. All right. Uh, my favourite song is Putting Out Fire with Gasoline by David Bowie. I like that one. That's I like that great, one. That's a great song. Right, banger of a track. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to pencil on favourite musician, maybe Bowie, question mark. Well, Bowie in the sense that he wrote and yeah. performed that song. So, you know, he's kind of definitely in the running. Moving on to, I guess, the major issues. The first one I'd like to talk about is cost of living crisis. So mm. it's sort of like the topic to talk about. Like you read it in the papers, you hear it in the news, you see it at the supermarket. And obviously you feel it first time you have to pay rent. But what's the Greens Party policy when it comes to dealing with the cost of living crisis? Yeah, well, it's one of those things where in order to deal with the whole cost of living crisis, you've got to pull a whole lot of levers, right? So it's not a, it's not a short story. But the two key things uh, that we're campaigning on in this election are an income guarantee. So the idea that no person uh, uh, needs to live on less than $385 a week, right? So we, we launched this income guarantee that applies to students as well as you know, for example, people out of work or, you know, um, uh, people who, whose situations changed. Um, and so the idea is that is that we would transform the whole kind of um, work and income sort of system, which is incredibly punitive. It's incredibly complicated. Um, it means that lots and lots of people still slip through the cracks. There's been a lot of good progress over the course of the last six years that we've been in government. We've lifted about 30,000 children above the material hardship line, but there's still another 45,000 children living below that line, plus their families, of course. Yeah. Um, and so what we're saying is, well, uh, we are actually a wealthy country. We can fix that. And we can do that and pay for that with a fairer tax system. So we would also... Uh, everybody earning $125,000 a, a year or less would get a tax cut under that, um, and no one would pay any tax at all on the first $10,000 that they earn. Um, and that and the income guarantee would be paid for by a tax on the wealthiest 0.7% of New Zealanders who can afford it. So that's a big part. But as you mentioned rents, you know that um, if we only focus on the income side but rents keep going up, then it'll you know, it's kind of all for nothing, right? So housing is the other side of the equation that you've got to deal with the housing crisis. We still have, you know, tens of thousands of people on the waiting lists. 
We have terrible, terrible homes, and you know that because you live in them, uh, and and um, and we have to deal with that, right? So um, what we've said is that um, we want to provide a, um, a renters with a, a guarantee that in the first hundred days that we are in government, we will introduce legislation um, that protects renters, uh, that creates a, a, a register of rental properties and landlords to ensure that they're living up to the healthy home standards. We call that a warrant of fitness, a rental warrant of fitness. It's like, it's like for your car. It, exactly, right? Like if, if you're a car rental company like Hertz or Avis or any of those people, uh, you cannot rent out a car if uh, there is a chance that it will cause injury or death to the occupant of that vehicle. But if you're a landlord, you can rent out a property that will that will uh, give the people who live in it respiratory illnesses and put them in hospital, right? No. That is unacceptable. Again, we're a wealthy country. We are able to fix this, but we just have some of the lowest standards in the world for how we protect renters. Um, and we've also said that we will limit rental rent rises to no more than 3%, which is the Reserve Bank's top end of their inflation target. So we want to, you know, because, I mean, rents have, have risen way above uh, increases in, in wages over the course of the last 10 years so or so. When you're talking about the uh, capping rent increases at 3%, is that like just for one year or is that just going forward? No, 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 that's a, that's a standard. So the idea is that you, is that, um, you won't be able, a, a landlord won't be able to, uh, increase um, rents, and they won't be able to use a change of tenant, right? So the rental increase will be tied to the property, not to the uh, contract with the tenant. And so, um, you know, because we do know, for example, that there has been a pattern with some landlords who have gone and gone, okay, well, you're at the end of your um, um, your arrangement, so you're out, and we're going to bring in a new uh, group of tenants into the property, and their rent will be 20% higher than the people before, right? That's outrageous. Um, the operating costs of that property didn't go up 20% in that time period, right? So what we're saying is that, no, for that property, they will only be able to increase um, rents 3%, whether that's if you've got a long-term rental and you're there year after year, they won't be able to increase more than 3%. Um, if they switch between you and somebody else, then they will only be able to increase um, the incoming tenant's rent by 3% above what you were paying. Yeah. And that will be 3% per, like per year. They couldn't do it in 3%. Yep, that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, but just out of curiosity, spitballing here, what would happen, say, if the inflation rate stayed at like 6%? Would there be some leeway of this policy? Or? Well, uh, so, I mean, part of, part of this is that in, um, one of the driving uh, uh, causes of inflation is increases in accommodation costs, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, obviously, uh, when the um, the the the, dif- the difference between, I mean, there is obviously a relationship between the inflation rate and interest rates, right? Um, and so, the material thing for a, a property owner, a landlord, obviously, is the is the interest uh, is the interest rate. Um, but you can help to arrest the inflation rate, uh, which you know, the Reserve Bank then responds to by increasing interest rates. You can help to arrest the inflation rate by capping rent increases, right? So there's a sort of a, you know, a circular argument there that that people use to get out of it. But I would actually argue um, that actually one of those, you know, you just got to look at the flow of cause and effect there. The other thing is that if you look at the historical increases, um, rents at the, the rate of increases in rents in the last 12 months have actually slowed right down. Right? So they're actually less than the rate of inflation at the moment, um, and which is a good thing. 
Uh, but uh, when inflation was low and interest rates were low, rent increases were incredibly high. So there's an inverse relationship between the interest rate and the inflation rate and rent increases at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. That, oh, well, certainly over the last 10 years. So if, you, if, if people are going to say, well, you know, we need to be able to increase um, rents to respond to the inflation rate, oh, that's like, okay, well, maybe you should have done that the last 10 years, right? Where, where you know, interest rates were close to zero and the inflation rate, you know, um, was, uh, you know, Anywhere between zero and uh, and and sort of two or three percent, um, and so th- at that point, uh, you know, rents were going up, you know, much much higher than that. So, again, um, you can't have it both ways. Okay, I guess that sort of I'll return to like the wealth tax stuff and stuff a bit later, but because we're going on to housing, um, I guess this brings us to like this sort of question, and obviously this isn't a direct choice, but. If, if, let's say, you're a majority government, like Greens, come, come October, mm. 51% of the vote, 60 plus, 61 seats Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. Yeah. So let, let's say, and you're given a choice between prioritising everyone, getting as many people into owning a home as possible or making sure rents are cheap and affordable for everyone, which are you prioritising? Obviously, they aren't exclusive, but if you well, had to choose between one, which Well, you, you don't, you don't um, not only are they not mutually exclusive, one drives the other, right? Yeah. So... That that is that is truly not a choice between those two uh, those two things because one of the things that drives rental increases is the fact that there is a shortage of supply right and and so people don't have enough homes right so that they can't in some ways they're sort of the same thing you cannot I mean things like a, a rent cap you know that we're talking about is not an ideal solution, right? It's not the prettiest policy uh, solution in the book. You do it really in a, in a kind of an emergency situation. We are in an emergency situation, and that's because we don't have enough supply. So you have to build enough houses. And one of the things that we have said that we want to do is that we want to um, uh, give Kainga Order, which is you know Housing New Zealand, the state housing um, organisation, who are currently building about 4,000 houses just this calendar year. So they've, you know, they've really ramped up um, activity is that we want them to clear the waiting list, uh, which is about 20,000 um, um, uh, people, over the course of, of the next five years. And in order to do that, they need to enter into really long-term, i.e. 10-year contracts with construction companies and developers uh, to build thousands and thousands of homes every year. And one of the problems that we've got uh, is that um, because of the really short-term nature of this relationship, there's not a lot of stability in the construction sector. And so those construction companies aren't building up the capacity. They're not getting long-term supply chains. They're not putting people on long-term employment contracts and so on and so forth because they're just not sure if this year's activity is going to hold through until next year. And so one of the ways of ensuring that we actually do get enough houses and that that then helps to kind of cool the rental market um, is by uh, creating really long-term, like decade-long um, contracts to deliver, um, uh, you know, uh, very significantly increased supply. So we, we think that the sector has the capacity to probably build about 6,000 a year, you know, which is sort of an increase of about 1,500 over the ones that they're building at the moment. And part of the way that you increase that is by providing more certainty. So you do all of that. Sorry, this is a long answer to a short question. Um, but you do all of that. And what that means is that rents don't go up nearly as much because, you know, there's, people have got the luxury of choice about where to live. Yeah, cause I, guess, I guess that's what we were, I was sort of trying to touch on because, like, 
a lot of cities that have dealt with their housing, their housing crisis really well, like Vienna, mm. often employ huge amounts of publicly owned housing. You know, yes, so exactly. In fact, if you look anywhere in the world that has a functional housing market, uh, the state plays a huge role. Now, Vienna is a funny case in point because, of course, it used to be an imperial capital, right? And so when it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Vienna had a had a much bigger population than it does now. It's actually shrunk in terms of its population. But that did mean that they had the luxury of having oodles of extra uh, houses, you know, lots of extra accommodation. And the state has played a very big role uh, in kind of picking that up and, and managing that capacity. Singapore, which is one of the most free market economies in the world, where, you know, frankly, um, politicians on the right of, of New Zealand politics go, oh, we should be more like Singapore. And actually, there is a lot uh, to the way that Singapore runs themselves that's very attractive. One of the things that they do is they have massive state intervention in the housing market, massive state intervention in the housing market, which they kind of have to because it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little country. Geographically, it's slightly smaller than Lake Taupo, but it has millions of people living on it. So they, if, if they just had the kind of runaway, you know, largely unregulated market that we've got here, it would be an absolute disaster zone. So they, so they in order to have this kind of free and open economy, uh, you know, which it runs very efficiently, they make sure that everyone's got a bloody home to live in. Okay, cool. Um, thank you for that. So now, moving back to the wealth tax one, because I think that's probably the Greens maybe most talked about and probably most controversial policy. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it is the Greens proposing imposing an annual 2.5% tax on wealth up, on an individual's wealth above $2 million or a couple's wealth above $4 million, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So, I mean, it's, it's a progressive tax, right, like income taxes, uh, and so... Let's say I think one of the things that's often misunderstood about this um, is that people think that you know let's say I'm lucky enough to own a, a two two and a half million dollar house and I own that mortgage free and I own it by myself and I don't have a partner so I would I would qualify the tax only applies to the value of that asset over two million right so the tax is two and a half percent on the five hundred thousand that sits above the two million threshold, right? It doesn't apply to the whole two and a half million. So I think a lot of people misunderstand that. The other thing that people don't understand um, about it often is that um, it, it, it's your net wealth, right? So what that means is that if you have a mortgage, and of course the vast majority of people do, you subtract that. So, you know, I've got, you know, people go, oh, well, you know, that my house is valued at 2.2 million. Uh, so, you know, I have to pay this tax. I'm like, okay, what's your mortgage? And they say, oh, it's about $1.5 million. Okay, so your net wealth is actually $700,000. doesn't qualify. So that's why when we say it only applies to 0.7% of New Zealanders, it's because whilst there are obviously assets valued at over $2 million or $4 million if you're a couple around the country, most people have debt or mortgages against those, which means that they don't pay the tax. Okay. I, from my reading of the news, there have basically been two main criticisms levelled against this wealth tax. The first is this idea of capital flight. Capital flight, to our listeners, is this idea that rich people will take all their money, all their assets, and move themselves overseas and just get away from the tax. And a good example of this is Norway, because Norway is the only other major OECD country, as far as I'm aware. There's about has, five countries in the OECD yeah. that have wealth taxes of various sorts. Various sorts, yeah. But I think Norway is most directly comparable to yours? Uh, yes, it is. It's the most similar system, yeah. yeah. And Norway recently increased their wealth tax to 1.1% on um, on 
assets above $6 million, and they've experienced a mass exodus of their rich people, which is costing the government tens of millions of dollars. So how will the Greens policy end up in a different result, especially since it's much higher? Yeah, well, so New Zealand is the only country in the OECD that doesn't have either a wealth tax or a capital gains tax or a stamp duty or an inheritance tax or some combination of those things. And so, you know, one of the complaints that I hear is that people go, oh, well, we'll just move to Australia then. Well, Australia has a capital gains tax and a stamp duty, and you would pay more uh, in Australia on your stamp duty and your capital gains tax than you would on the wealth tax here in New Zealand. So, you know, there are kind of, you know, limits to that. The other thing is that we, we've actually assumed a level of capital flight. So we, we, we've actually made our numbers are actually quite conservative. So what we said is, uh, like we said, about we think about 0.7% of New Zealanders um, would uh, be eligible to pay the tax. Um, we've said that we think that that will bring in roughly $10 billion a year in revenue above what we're currently bringing in, um, but that is after a certain level of attrition. So we've actually been pretty cautious about you know these things, and you actually have to do that with any tax policy. You apply a sort of a, um, a, a kind of an avoidance um, uh, kind of threshold as well, because if a hundred percent of people paid it, it'd actually bring in quite a lot more than ten ten billion dollars. Um, but you have to assume that that some people will work it, work out a way. The other thing is that um, some people really like being New Zealanders, right? And and um, have you know quite willingly come here. And we've actually heard from a number of people who would be paying this tax who say, actually, I want to live in a country where we eliminate poverty. I want to live in a country where um, we can fix the housing crisis. I want to live in a country that's a leader on climate change. I want to live in a country that looks after its native biodiversity and so on and so forth. And I am prepared to pay tax in order to do that. And, you know, some on the right will say, well, you should just contribute to charities then. You know, there's a there's a thing here that says, well, actually... I think that I should pay more tax, but I also think that all of my peers should also want to live in a country uh, that does those things. And so, you know, just relying on charity to fix all of the world's problems, you know, hasn't worked so far, um, and it's unlikely to work again in the future. Okay, but on that point, you sort of mentioned that New Zealand doesn't have a wealth tax, inheritance tax, stamp duty, capital gains. What's the rationale for imposing a wealth tax as opposed to capital gains or inheritance or something like that? Well, there are pluses and minuses to all of those things, right? So one of the advantages of a capital gains tax uh, is that it's on uh, what what's called realised capital. So it, you actually have the cash in hand because you've just sold that house. You know, you've got the cash, you pay the tax then. Whereas with a wealth tax, uh, you it's like rates, you know? I mean, a, yeah. rates are essentially a, a wealth tax, a form of wealth tax, where it's like, well, your house is valued at X, you know, um, and you've, every year you've got to pay Y. You know, that's the kind of, that's basically the closest analogy. So you could actually say we've already got a wealth tax, but it hasn't led to, like, everyone leaving the country because they pay rates. So <clears throat> the advantage of a wealth tax in this situation is that much of the capital gain over the course of the last few years was built on, you know, that huge injection of cash into the economy when um, interest rates were, you know, very close to zero. And you saw huge increases in asset values as a result of that. <clears throat> A capital gains tax only applies to assets that are sold from this point forward, right? So you actually miss all of that, whereas a wealth tax actually helps to uh, recover some of that unearned and untaxed uh, capital gain over the course of the last few years. 
So what you're saying is that the wealth tax is essentially like a retrospect of capital gains, as it were. Well, it, it, what it means is that it, it applies on current values, right? Um, and uh, and it starts generating revenue immediately. A capital gains tax applies to the sale of an asset at some point in the future, and so the um, the revenue doesn't really start coming in for several years because you kind of have to wait for people to make a sale, right? In, in order for in order for that value to be realised. Okay. Um, I guess the other major criticism I've had leveled against this is that it catches up a lot of like maybe middle class, upper middle class families. So I guess the main the main reason why this criticism is launched is because obviously it doesn't exclude the family home. And I guess you know, let's given the way the housing market's gone, the way the stock market boomed, you know, the way interest rates started mm. kind of on the up and up. If you've paid off your mortgage and you've made some good interest rate, like good picks in the stock market, it's feasible that you could get caught up in this through no necessarily fault of your own. And we, we tell people that they should be saving for their retirement. We tell people they should be paying off their mortgage. Yet at the end of the day, they might get penalised by this. And I guess, I guess the criticism comes about on like why should we be forcing people to rely on the state as opposed to like saving for their own retirement? Like why should we be penalising people for saving for their future? Well, I mean, first of all. Uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to own a $5 million house mortgage-free, first of all, lucky you. Uh, second of all, um, the tax only applies to the $1 million over that $4 million. So if you're talking about a, a family home here, you know, there aren't a lot of family homes that are valued at $5 million. It's like, it's like family home and stocks and bank accounts and all of that too, though. So it's not just the... Well, yeah, it's it's on the total value of yeah, your, of your, your assets. assets. Yeah. Um, less any mortgages or debt yeah. that you have. Uh, like I said, this applies to 0.7%. So upper middle class is not 0.7%, right? Upper middle class is, you know, kind of top 10 to 20%, depending on where you where you draw the line. Um, and and there are, frankly, very few people who have accidentally found themselves in the top 0.7% of wealthiest New Zealanders in the country. Um, and houses, you know, like if, if you are talking about that kind of um, thing, then... Um, you know that 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 kind of wealth uh, that's built up between two people. It is individualized, right? So yeah. you're literally talking about mum and dad here, um, and and that their collective wealth would be north of uh, four million dollars. Well, that any debt or or mortgages applied to any of that. It's a tiny, tiny group of people in the country, and whilst a lot of people might aspire to be in that group, uh, there aren't very many people who are you know, able to get there because the system is rigged against them. So 95% of New Zealanders, which does capture your um, upper middle income uh, families, 95% of New Zealanders will get a tax cut under our um, proposal. So your upper middle income families would generally be better off uh, than un- under what we're proposing than, uh, than not. Okay, but I guess, I guess the question sort of like, Falls around this idea that Kiwis don't aren't traditionally known for being good savers. Like among the OECD, we're not particularly we don't have particularly high rates of saving. And wait, and I guess this is sort of another disincentive for people to actually save a lot of money. Well, uh, I think that the people who own assets of over more than four million dollars aren't the ones that you need to worry about in terms of having saved for their retirement. Um, remember that we're not taking a hundred percent here, right? We're taking two and a half percent, and so and two and a half percent of the value over either two million if you're an individual or four million if you're a couple, um, which, like I said, applies to a very very small number of uh, of people, and so um, the uh, the chances that those people will not be well off in their retirement are very very small. 
Um, whereas being able to provide a income guarantee, uh, which ensures that <clears throat> um, the people who currently can't save for their retirement because they don't earn enough money, because they need every single penny just to get by on a day-to-day basis, will actually have some hope of being better off in their retirement. Um, just to our listeners, could you give them a bit of a, I guess, just a bit of a like a bit more detail about what this income guarantee would look like for them? Like, if you're a student, what does that sort of look like? Well, if you're a student, um, the, I mean, the basic idea is that. So the income guarantee wraps up a whole bunch of you know different um, things in the social income support system at the moment that are currently very confused, and you have people who are kind of living on multiple forms of of support. So what we're saying is that as as a minimum, if you're a student or if you're unemployed, um, uh, then we would you'd get an income of three hundred and eighty five dollars a week. Now there are also top-ups to that, depending on, for example, you know, if you're a parent or if you're someone who has a disability um, and and so on. So, you know, obviously, uh, you know, people in those sort of circumstances would find 385, in fact, 385 is not a lot of, you know, even if you aren't in one of those circumstances. Um, but it, it does mean that you've got that um, that guarantee of, of having that income available to you. I guess now moving on to the next topic, climate change. Obviously, you like you like to talk about this one. My mastermind specialist subject. Yes. So, I mean, a lot of young people feel like New Zealand's not doing enough. And what proposals are you proposing? They're right. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what proposals are you putting, like, are the Greens putting forward? What proposals are the Greens campaigning on this election? Yeah. sort of deal with whole climate change? Okay. Well, so there's a couple of ways to answer that. So we actually haven't yet released our climate change policies for this election campaign. And I'm sorry, I'm unable to give you an exclusive today. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. Just, um, just like a little bit of a teaser. Yeah. Well, the teaser is that, um, well, first of all, I mean, we have, over the course of the last six years that we've been in government, we have fundamentally shifted the trajectory um, of climate change policy. Uh, the, the, um, the basic infrastructure that we've built, the Climate Change Commission, legislating our 2050 targets, putting in place these kind of short, shorter-term five-year emissions budgets, um, uh, you know, the changes to the emissions trading scheme, all of that kind of stuff is fundamental to the transition happening at all. But uh, the momentum is really only just beginning because, you know, whilst we've had an emissions trading scheme and so on for, you know, 15 years or whatever, it was gutted for most of its time, wasn't able to do its job. And frankly, governments just weren't that interested in climate change policy. So in many ways, um, our government's been the one that has actually started comprehensive climate policy. Now, that momentum has to massively pick up. Right, and you're not going to get that with a national act government. In fact, act have said that they want to dismantle the, all of that infrastructure that we built over the course of the last six years, um, and take the country back thirty years. So that that would be a very very bad outcome. Um, only the Greens have really prioritised action on climate change, you know, as as kind of central to what the next government should look like. So our ability to influence that momentum will come down to how many MPs we have in Parliament and how many ministers we've got sitting around the cabinet table. Um, and so part of what we want to do is take what we've done and really put a rocket under it, you know, and, and really build that build that momentum. Having said that, we will obviously be going into this campaign with some ideas about, you know, what we'll be doing. And the important thing uh, is that in this campaign, we're really looking for the connection between kind of mass scale, urgent climate action and the cost of living crisis. 
right? So people are in a really tight spot right now, and it is very difficult to get people motivated to act on climate change when they're struggling to put food on the table or a roof over their heads, right? So the question is, how do you bring those things together uh, where you get climate action that helps to lower living costs and make people's lives better? Um, and I think when you can create the conditions for... Uh, for that, you, you people respond, right? So an example, we are talking about middle-class families before, an example of that is the, um, the clean car discount. Now, last month, 50%, one in two new cars sold in this country was an electric vehicle. That's astonishing, right? It took Norway 10 years to get to, talking about Norway as well, <laughs> 10 years to get to, to half of all new cars sold being EVs. It's taken us three. You know, if you went back two years... Only 5% of new cars sold were EVs. The year before that, it was 1%. So we've gone from 1% to 50% uh, in the time that we've been in government, and it's been as a result of the clean car discount. Okay, but wait, just on that point, quickly. Um, I'm, as far as I'm aware, a lot of the cars sold in New Zealand are like second hands from like, inputs from Japan and stuff. Yeah. So do you know what sort of percentage of... Um of the, like of EVs of the total car sale market we're talking about here. Yeah, so so it applies to new and used cars that are coming yeah. into the country, um, but the vast majority of cars that are sold every month are sold in the domestic market rather than with new imports. Right. So you're, you're right. the The total percentage of the I cannot actually remember the the, number, the percentage of the fleet in total. It's still pretty small. But the point is, cause, you know, because New Zealanders hold on to their cars for a really long time. I think the average is something like 19 years or something. So, um, so it is critical that we change the flow of what's coming into the country because that obviously then. Uh, you know, does kind of flow through, but it is going to take time for yeah. that to flow through. And how are you proposing on changing what's coming into the country, like with that with the imports? Well, that's the that's the thing, right? So yeah. the clean car discount has fundamentally changed what's coming into the country. The other part of it is that we've um, uh, brought in this vehicle emission standards. And remember, we were the other than Russia and Australia, we were the only countries in the OECD that had no tailpipe emission standards. At not all. a great, not a great not, group to be part of. Not awesome. Not a great club to be part of. Um, and uh, you know, um, the Australian government changed last year in the middle of last year. And uh, I've I've heard uh, Chris Bowen, who's the Australian minister, saying we are the only country other than Russia that doesn't have tailpipe. And so they're about to move on that as yeah. well, right? Not anticipating Russia bringing it in anytime soon. Um, but the uh, that that is also changing the profile. So even the internal combustion engine vehicles that we're bringing in now have to um, observe the kind of European level standards, which are pretty high, um, and um, and and that is fundamentally changing uh, the fleet. So I guess the final question is like a lot of young people, like also a lot of our listeners, they sort of want progressive government. They want like a Labour Greens government, but they're not sure why should they vote for Greens over Labour. Like you guys are going to be going to coalition together. So what do you what do you, what do you tell like these people? Well, what I would say is that uh, the Greens are the party that have got the boldest policies for action on climate change, for uh, reversing the decline in our you know native forests uh, and uh, endangered species, and for ending poverty. Right, and and so if you look at what we're offering. Um, we have got uh, policies that are very thoroughly thought through. They're fully costed, um, and they're and they're very very progressive. And we've said, as a wealthy country, there is no reason to tolerate 
you know, tens of thousands of people living in cold, damp, mouldy homes that make them sick. There's no reason to tolerate the level of um, inequity and poverty that we have in this country. There's no reason to tolerate why we would be so mediocre in our climate response. But in order to get that, uh, we need to make up a larger proportion of the next government, right? We need to, uh, uh, we always say, look, you know, we're really pleased with the work that we've done with Labour. We've got a very good um, working relationship with them over two terms of government now. Um, But we think we need to go further than they are prepared to go and we need to go faster than they are prepared to go. And that is the role that the Green Party can play. But we can only play that role when we have influence over that government. And what that means is that we need more Green MPs in Parliament and more Green Ministers sitting around the Cabinet table. Because at the moment... You know, Martin and I are the only two Green Ministers. I think we do a pretty good job under the circumstances. We're outside Cabinet, so our influence over Cabinet decisions is very limited. Um, and, you know, it's it's very much just to do with the areas that we've got some influence over. Uh, and fundamentally, Labour don't need our vote at the moment because they had an outright majority at the last election, so they can ignore us on pretty much anything that they that they want to. Um, and so, and I mean, that's fine. That's the you know democratic process. But ultimately, you know, if you kind of want a progressive government, actually, that's got to be one where the Greens are at the heart of it. Okay, thank you for that. So, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. And to all our listeners, thank you for listening, and catch you next time. All right, thank you very much. Thank you.